1: Would we really feel more safe in a world without police? I'm Fabiola Cinius, and I write for Vox about race and policy. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Growing up, I never really thought about the police, but they were a pretty big part of my life. I usually couldn't walk to the grocery store in my central Brooklyn neighborhood without passing several NYPD squad cars and vans. I couldn't go to school without greeting the dozens of officers in my school building's lobby or hallways. On the surface, I trusted the police. They were there to keep us safe. My neighborhood was deemed, quote unquote, bad. And of course, the police were there to make it good. But subconsciously, I always felt like there was more going on. Like why were many of my friends stopped and searched when they were just trying to go about their day? Why did we sometimes go to great lengths to avoid having to interact with police officers? And even though there was a precinct nearby and countless officers lining our streets, why did we still feel unsafe? It wasn't until activists on social media started calling attention to the repeated police killings of unarmed Black Americans that I started to question the role of the police. How was it that the deaths of so many unarmed civilians at the hands of police didn't prompt leaders to implement institutional change? Then came 2020. Ideas about defunding the police, shrinking police budgets to bolster community social services instead, and police abolition entered the mainstream in a way they hadn't before. These ideas are contentious. Some people, frustrated by the state of policing and prisons, are curious about them, but unsure of their practicality. Others, they flat out rejected them, dismissing the ideas as silly. Others are vocal champions of police abolition. And one of the loudest champions is lawyer, activist, and author, Derica Purnell. Dereka recently wrote the book, Becoming Abolitionists, Police, Protests, and the Pursuit of Freedom. In it, she chronicles her journey from police abolition skeptic to someone who is now dreaming up a world without the police. This conversation is challenging because Derica asks us to really let go of what we believe about the police. She invites us to question what we've been socialized to accept in favor of a world that gives everyone a real chance to pursue happiness, health, and safety. Derek Purnell, thank you so much for being here. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for having me. So I've been spending some time reading your book, and the first thing I want to ask you is is just very simple. When you call yourself an abolitionist, what does that mean?
2: Well, I mean that I belong to a tradition, a generation, a group of people who are committed to eradicating the violence from police, prisons, surveillance, prosecutors, right, the entire carceral state, and committed to eradicating violence in our society at the same time over time until all of it's obsolete. So I said that
1: was a simple question, but that is not a simple answer. And I just want to get a sense of how you're feeling in this moment. I feel like you've been in the hot seat for a while now. I've watched since like early 2020, people just outright dismiss your abolitionist vision. So how does it feel to champion an idea that people seem to hate so much, but then at the same time, it's an idea that's being so well received. People are talking about abolition in a way that I don't think we've talked about before.
2: Well, it depends on the people. I feel very lucky that there have been lots of organizers, scholars, thinkers, people in our community who've been organizing around abolition for decades, quite literally before I've been born. And so I'm coming in literally on the tail end of so much of the groundwork that's been laid by people who've come before me. And just how lucky am I to be an inheritor of that tradition, right? Right. Abolition has always been unpopular, even since slavery, right? There were debates around whether there should be an anti-slavery movement or an abolitionist movement. There are critiques of abolition from the left, from the right, from liberals, from conservatives. So usually the most progressive stances in our society have always been under fire because the status quo is much easier to maintain it if you have the media, if you have corporations so many people who have the power to maintain oppression, controlling the narrative and the money. And so, yeah, I I don't know if I've been in the hot seat any more than anyone who has been fighting to do this work for decades, centuries even. And I just feel lucky to be in that tradition.
1: So in the beginning of your book, you talk about how the idea of abolition actually used to repulse you. So that's a pretty strong thing to say for someone who is championing abolition so strongly right now. So, Can you walk me through that journey? When did you first learn of abolition as a concept
2: and what really drew you in? Yeah, so I first learned about abolition as a concept, maybe as a child, right? Because I learned about the abolition of slavery. I learned about the history of Black people on plantations who were running away to get free, who were engaged in insurrections, who were plotting rebellions, who were orating, who were traveling throughout the country, building an underground railroad. And so my first contact with abolition generally was through the context of slavery, which is also the context in which many abolitionists today draw on when we talk about contemporary abolition, particularly in response to the prison industrial complex. But when I was in college, I would hear organizers and activists talk about abolition at meetings or at protests. And I honestly just didn't even know what they were talking about. It's just hearing the word abolition or police abolition or prison abolition, or even the abolition of borders. I just didn't take them seriously. I said, oh, you want to abolish police? Like where? How? Like why? What are we going to do with all the bad people, all of the horrible people? I mean, My response, my repulsion mostly came from a place of ignorance and just not really grappling or taking time to understand what these people meant when they were saying abolition. And it's not because I wanted to keep police necessarily or I wanted to keep prisons necessarily. It's because like most people in this country, my ideas about policing and about prisons were largely unexamined, right? I hadn't taken time ever to really think about where did police come from? What's their role, purpose, function in this society? Do we need them in the way that I've been conditioned to believe that we need them? And so I was dismissive and repulsive because I just didn't take those activists seriously. And then years later, by the time I started studying and being pushed to think about abolition from other organizers and scholars and people who were in the community surrounding Cambridge, I was shocked to learn about the abolitionist project. And still had lots of questions. I still have lots of questions, but it was very different from what I initially thought it was when I first heard it, you know, more than a decade ago. And how does being a member of the Trayvon generation
1: factor into your quest to learn more about abolition?
2: Well, there are so many of us, when I say many of us, I mean people who are part of what Elizabeth Alexander calls the Trayvon generation, who watched Trayvon get killed, watched George Zimmerman go free, and have since continued to watch videos of police killings go viral. But in 2012, after Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman, me and so many other people across the country, we went into the streets to demand that the police arrest George Zimmerman, and we called that justice. We said that we wanted justice for a trade line. And what justice meant at the time for me and for many other people is that George Zimmerman not only had to get arrested, but also had to get convicted, right? That there also needed to be a change in laws like stay Your Ground, that were basically helping lots of white men get away with murder. And so I watched organizations that eventually became Dream Defenders. And, you know, I watched the formation of BYP 100. I watched all of these groups just catalyze a movement that was the primary demand was to get someone arrested. And then from 2012 to 2014, 2015, and the aftermath of the Ferguson Uprising, I watched the same people that I organized with, that I demanded justice with, I watched them become police and prison abolitionists. I watched them grow and ask questions. I watched them become revolutionaries and engage in critical thinking and political education and form campaigns to close jails, to remove money from the police. And so what I really love about the book is that it gave me a little bit of space to talk about the political evolution of people like Charlene Carruthers and Phil Agnew. And I mean, so many different people right now who we see espouse abolitionist politics, but it didn't happen overnight.
1: And your ideas on abolition even changed while you were writing this book. So what about that? Like, what did you think about abolition when you first set out to write this book? And then by the time you were done with it, what did you come away with?
2: Oh, man, so much. (laughs) So so much. The reasons why I thought I was writing the book in the beginning changed very differently by the end of the book. And so I went into this book thinking that I wanted to help everyone become an abolitionist. I I had a particular kind of fire for the past few years to try to convert people to become individual abolitionists. And through writing the book, through deep conversations with, you know, friends and people I trust, I was really challenged on that particular impulse. And I became more excited about introducing people to organizations, to other people, to ideas about the abolitionist project which includes disability justice and earth justice and feminism and decolonization. So, yeah, I think that I was really challenged about having people identify personally as individual, as abolitionists, rather than being committed to abolitionist goals, projects, principles, ethics. And that's what I really hope that people draw away from the book. If you finish reading this book and you don't identify as an abolitionist, I think that's fine. I don't need individuals to identify as abolitionists. But if you read the book and you come away thinking, oh, wow, these are some things I'm really excited about and I can get on board with. I'm much more interested in building a movement with people who are curious and excited about doing that.
1: And as you said before, abolition is definitely not a new concept. Like for me right now, I'm reading this book called The Black Jacobins. Mm-hmm. It's like the definitive account of the Haitian Revolution published in 1938. And I'm like blown away by chapters that talk about the Maroons, right? Just groups of people who fled and lived in the mountains for decades and decades and would, you know, come down here and there to try to get this revolution started. And it's like, I never learned about these things in school. So it's just like abolition does have a very long history, but it sounds like you're also kind of forging a new kind of abolition where you're saying, I don't think that capitalism and abolition can coexist. So can you talk a little bit about your specific brand of abolition and how it might differ from people who were talking about abolition some decades ago?
2: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The word brand makes me a little bit nervous okay. when you say <laughs> my particular brand of abolition. It's mm-hmm. ironic because you're asking me about capitalism and I'm nervous about abolition yes. becoming a brand. But I think about the tradition of abolitionists that I'm in. And we can go to someone like W.B. Du Bois, who was very excited and who affirmed lots of white abolitionists like Daddy Stevens and Charles Sumner for taking up the cause to help free black people from slavery. and W. Du Bois, he did something else in Black Reconstruction, right? He is also critical of white abolitionists who were committed to the rapid capitalist industrialization of the United States. He considered it just a huge flaw in their activism and in their organizing you know, for Black people. And so even the tradition of abolitionists that I see myself in, it's related to W.B. Du Bois' critique of former abolitionists who are committed to ending an oppressive institution, but who are not critical or refuse to hold a serious analysis of the way that capitalism. Was becoming a uh, rapidly becoming a destructive force in the United States. And so when I think about W.B. Du Bois, when I think about the black socialists and black communists who said we charged genocide in the 1950s, right? They were criticizing the US government and they were pointing to all of the violence in our communities, including police brutality through an anti-capitalist framework, right? And I think about that all the way down to people who are developing analyses around the prison industrial complex. And we read Ruth Wilson-Gilmore or Miriam Kaba or Angela Davis, right? People who espouse anti-capitalist politics because they know that capitalism creates so much inequality in the United States. We are looking at the coronavirus right now you know, we have people who are losing jobs. There's an eviction crisis. There's so much more poverty. And yet, billionaires are getting more money. And what happens with that inequality? Prisons, police, prosecutors, they ultimately become the managers of that inequality. And so we can't just abolish the prison industrial complex, or we can't just end mass incarceration and keep capitalism intact. And so I see myself in that longer line of tradition. What has changed is the way that capitalism manifests So it doesn't look the same as it did in the 1800s or the early 1900s, right? We have new tenets of capitalism that we need to fight, you know, because it's at least attempting to convince lots of poor people, Black people, people of color, Indigenous people, that you can work your way up in it. There's a lot of social mobility if we just rely on capitalism. We have politicians saying that they're a capitalist to the bones, right? So we have to figure out how to fight the narrative that capitalism is a salvific economic option in this country because it's really causing so much devastation that the police ultimately manage.
1: Right. So I want to talk some more about how we develop the attachment that we have to the police in the United States. I grew up in New York City when I was in high school. Senior year, I was violently mugged in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. And it's kind of a crazy story because it happened so fast. Like I was coming out of the train station with Two of my friends, it was around like five o'clock, so the sun was already down because it was like fall season. I had a bag on my shoulder. It was like college application season. So I had my laptop in there. I had important like paperwork for the colleges that I was filling out. When I was like coming out of the train, these two guys just come up behind me and they just tug really hard on my shoulder pull my bag. I try to, you know, stop them from getting it. They get it. They start running. What was crazy is I decided in my mind, it wasn't like, oh my God, let me grab my phone and call the police. I decided to chase them down. I was like, what I need (laughs) right now is my (laughs) bag. (laughs) Yeah. So I started chasing these two guys up Nostrand (laughs) Avenue in Brooklyn. And the one who had my bag went down like a dark little street and the other one who didn't have my bag, like went up toward Eastern Parkway. I'm chasing the one with my bag. But then when we like kind of get to the middle of the block, he slows down and I kind of got scared. I'm like, Oh no, maybe he might pull out like a knife or a gun or something. Let me stop. So then I, you know, went back and joined my friends. They had no idea what happened. And it was only then when I was like, I guess I should call the cops. So I called the police, tell them what happened. They're like, all right, we'll send someone out. And we weren't too far from a precinct in Brooklyn. They show up maybe like 20 minutes later. I describe what happened. They took me down to the station. They actually sat me down with a sketch artist. I described uh, what the two guys looked like. I assume they, you know, put pictures up around the neighborhood or just kept it in their file. And then in the weeks after, I did ride-alongs with the cops. So they would be like, yeah, meet us at this time. We'll take you around. So they parked me outside of like... Some basketball courts in the neighborhood. We sat outside of like popular restaurants. Oh
2: my god! Yeah, and it was
1: it was fascinating because I'm like, here I am. You know, my bag with my laptop was at this point stolen like three weeks ago, and I'm like sitting out in a car, like doing a lookout with the police oh officers.
2: Oh my god.
1: Yeah, it got to a point where I was like, all right, this is okay. Thank you so much for your efforts, officers. Wait, they were but, getting
2: paid and you were sitting there helping them volunteer yeah, it's basically, for police labor? Yeah, basically seeing,
1: <laughs> trying to see if I could see these guys. And I did feel uncomfortable. Part of me was like, oh, this is nice of the cops to like invest their time in doing this. But then I was also like, I'm not going to get my bag back. Also, if I see these guys on the court. I'm not going to sit and point them out like it felt weird. And so whenever I think of like abolition or calls to defund the police, I always think back to that interaction that I had with police officers because it was kind of like the crime wasn't prevented. You know, my bag was long gone. I still wasn't safe. You know, my mom, whenever I would leave the house, was still like, be careful. Mm-hmm. Don't take your phone out on the train. And this was during the height of stop and frisk. So we mm-hmm. there were cops everywhere. And so even with knowing that in that small moment, the police didn't help me out, there was still this idea in my mind of like, okay, I guess things are better because there are cops standing, you know, on my block in Brooklyn patrolling. So can you just talk about why you think so many people hold on to the police as just something, as you also describe in your book?
2: Well, thank you for sharing that story. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. It's not fun, obviously, Mm -hmm. getting your important things stolen. When I was sick with COVID last year, I was too sick to bring my bike in out my car. And the next morning when I went outside, my bike was gone. It was my birthday gift. I had only had it for a few months and I was so sad. <laughs> and so, yeah, oh. it's not fun to have things stolen. It sucks. It's, it's tragic. Yeah, it's bad. And so I think that people hold on to the idea of policing for lots of reasons. I think one, like I did, it's largely unexamined. Police appear as normal neutral fixtures of our society for a lot of people. Like, oh yeah, we have teachers, we have post office workers, we have cops, we have counselors. They're presented as first responders. When cities try to raise money for medical emergency services, what do you see? You see police, fire, and paramedics all listed. And so They're interwoven as normal fictions of our society, despite the violent origins of their history and despite the continued practices that they do every day. I think that's one reason that I don't know if enough people have asked, why do we have police? Why is this the case that our society is set up like this, you know? And the great thing about social movements and about activism, that it compels people to ask critical questions about the kinds of people we are and the kinds of society that we have, right? Someone had to ask, why is it that gay people can't get married in the United States? Or why is it that women can't get abortions in the United States, right? People have to ask and force these questions. Because if you don't, you can assume that the very oppressive set of relationships that we have, the very oppressive institutions that we have, are normal. So, we need more people to engage in activism so that we can compel others to think critically about what we have and ask if we can have something better. A second reason why I think we hold on to the idea of policing is because the people who continue to lobby to give more money to the police are people who also have lots of power and they essentially present a dichotomy to people you know they've had their neighborhoods divested of services people who live in ghettos and class exploited neighborhoods people who don't have democratic control over their schools and then you have people in power saying well you're gonna experience crime and violence if we don't have police wouldn't you rather just reform them Right. And so, what I think is on abolitionists to explain is that, well, we're not only trying to make police obsolete, we're also trying to figure out actually how to prevent violence, how to prevent the violent mugging that you just described. Right. We're not trying to say, well, you know, someone can just come and take your book bag and then there's not going to be anyone for you to call. That's not the goal of abolition. Abolition Abolitionists, at least the tradition I belong to, we're asking, why are people selling book bags off of trains? Why did someone steal my bike out of my car? Right? Like why is it that the overwhelming majority of people who experience theft in this country are people who are poor? Right? The people who get the most taken from them are people who are poor, who are living in trailers, who are living in an apartment complex and project housing, and they mostly are experiencing thefts and robberies and burglaries from other people who are poor. So if we had less inequality, perhaps there would be significantly fewer muggings or people wouldn't be lurking in the middle of night to take out a bike to sell it for whoever knows what, right? So how can we reorient our society? to fight the massive inequality that exists because of capitalism, because of racism, because of ableism, instead of just relying on police to be barely responsive actors to the inequality, which is what we have right now. And here's the thing. All of that, you said for three weeks you were riding around with the police. The amount of labor that Brooklyn or the city of New York paid for, for those cops to do the patrol work with you, it could have bought you another laptop. (laughs) A fair point. It could have bought you several laptops, <laughs> several. And so we are literally, we're getting police. We're paying them thousands and thousands of dollars to replace things that are a few hundred dollars. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. But instead, you were doing ride-alongs and they literally put you in jeopardy of potentially identifying someone you know, that person may be going to jail. Maybe they're going to get a record. And then what's going to happen? They're going to get out of jail with a record. It's going to be hard for them to get a job. It's going to be hard for them to get housing. And they're going to probably still a they need to survive, right? So it's like, well, how do we actually disrupt the cycle by addressing the actual inequality and not just using police to be responsive to it?
1: Liberal opponents to police abolition usually hold the banner for quote-unquote reform, a catch-all term that can imply anything from the introduction of body cameras to setting up a civilian review board. But for abolitionist Derek Purnell, reforms like these don't go far enough. I'll ask her why after a quick
2: break.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. The internet is big, and if you're trying to run your own business, it can make you feel pretty small, hard for your customers to find. But Shopify can help you carve out your own little corner of the web with your own online shop. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether it's through their all-in-one e-commerce platform or their in-person point of sale system, you can sell anywhere with Shopify tons of brands you might recognize rely on Shopify to power their e-commerce, like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and more. Whether you're just starting out or have years in the game, Shopify's got you covered. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vox, all lowercase. You can go to shopify.com slash vox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com vox. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout.
1: So I do want to get into this idea that the police can be reformed. There are so many people, especially liberals, um, especially liberal politicians, who many of us really look up to, who say, you know what, we hear what you're saying, defund movement. We hear what you're saying, abolitionists. Maybe they're not saying that, but (laughs) they're saying, you know what, in the past, for example, if we take community policing, right, Biden, when he was campaigning in 2020, was saying— We just have not put enough money toward community policing. It was never fully funded, so we need to continue with that program. Why do you say that police reform isn't the answer? And I'll I'll list off some other reforms, whether it's like community oversight boards, we have the banning of chokeholds, we have diversifying police forces, you know, just have more chiefs who are black, for example. Why aren't these reforms enough, according to what you've argued many times?
2: For so many reasons, for so many reasons. We can look at diversity, for example. Many of the police departments around the country are absolutely very diverse. New York City has a very diverse police department. Baltimore, St. Louis, all have very diverse police departments. And still, the brutality is still there. We can look at a place like Puerto Rico, where maybe 100% of the officers there are Puerto Rican, yet they're one of the most violent policing institutions that belong to the United States. And so diversity, what it does, unfortunately, it discourages people of color from filing complaints against cops, right? It's like, well... I don't know if this encounter was obviously racist because now I have a black cop who's stopping me and frisking me and I don't like it. But I don't know if I'm going to go to the police department and say, you know, what this black cop did was racist. And so we see where there's community policing and diversity, we see decline in people reporting cops for misconduct. It has a perverse effect. But there's one major reason. Second major reason. Why many of these reforms don't work is that they don't get to the heart of what policing does, which is manage inequality. And so let's say I'm I'm a homeless person. I'm sleeping under a bridge and police come, especially if I'm in St. Louis, they spray water on the ground so that the ground freezes over to stop homeless people from sleeping in front of City Hall. Let's say this, right? Let's say all those cops are white or all those cops are mean when they curse at people, when they tell them to move off the sidewalk. Now let's say, okay, let's do this with community policing. Let's make all these cops so much more nice. Let's make them more friendly. They can bring water. They can bring donuts and hot chocolate to pass out to people who are homeless. At the end of the day, whether it's the most angriest, racist, violent cop, or whether it's the nicest, politest, gayest woman blackest cop, at the end of the day, their job is to move those homeless people from one part of the city to another, right? They're not undermining the homelessness. They're not finding people housing. They're not pushing back on inequality. At the end of the day, they're carrying out the interests of the corporations who occupy downtown centers and they wanna make sure that they're maintaining the aesthetics, the appearance. So this is a nice, fancy, neat looking downtown center. We can't have homeless people with their blankets and their tents everywhere. So it doesn't matter if you have a subjectively better cop, right, with a good personality who volunteers on Sundays at church. At the end of the day, your favorite cop is primarily responsible with enforcing inequality. So we can reform them so they can enforce inequality better. We can put body cameras on them so we can watch how they enforce inequality. We can have all of the volunteer programs, the coffee with the cops, books and badges programs. They can hand out ice cream. At the end of the day, what they're primarily doing is finding better ways to manage inequality. So community policing sounds great, especially if you've experienced being harassed, stopped and frisked. Ticketed, sexually assaulted. If you've experienced militarized policing, if you've been tear gassed like I have, and your options are militarized policing or community policing, hell yeah, community policing sounds great. It's like, give me that, right? I want that. But those are false choices. Community police is a better, efficient way to obscure the true violence and function of policing, which is to manage inequality by overwhelmingly, locking up tens of millions of people every year and the overwhelming majority of those people are poor. I don't need a nicer cop to lock up poor people. I need people who are committed to fighting inequality and fighting policing itself.
1: Yeah, that makes me think of um, the example of... Camden County and how a lot of people love to look at Camden as this model for police reform. So in 2013, Camden disbanded its police force and then it kind of rebuilt it and replaced it with a county-wide one. And crime did decrease, right? So looking at numbers from a a Reuters story, the police reported 1,161 violent crime incidents in 2019, and that was down 42% since 2012. And then excessive force complaints also dropped. So three were reported um, and registered in 2019, down from 65 in 2014. But then there are also reports of this program just being propaganda. Like, yes, the, the crime rate has gone down, but it's also a matter of aggressive policing, policing that's focused on broken windows policy, and also just surveillance. So... There's a piece from Brendan McQuaid in The Appeal, and it talks about how police, from July to October 2014, the Camden County Police wrote up 99 tickets for riding a bicycle without a bell.
2: Oh, my gosh. And they basically
1: struggled to process about 125,000 different cases, citation tickets, Tickets that were issued by the new force between 2013 and 2014. And so it was like a 97,000 case increase from the previous year. And most of those cases were for petty offensives. So what is your response to the fact that data is skewed? It, It looks like even there are studies that show policing works to decrease crime. So if we look at different strategies like deterrence or hotspot policing, Like one study, for example, found that deploying police in high crime areas was associated with less crime in New York City. So I just threw a lot at you. But just any kind of comment on the fact that there is some research that suggests that policing can be successful to reduce crime. But then it's also like, should we be thinking of crime reduction as our only goal to society, to bettering society?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a fair question. I think the first thing I'll speak to right now is Camden. So what happens with police reform, and I would absolutely call it copaganda, is that it zooms in on what changes have been made with policing in a city like Camden. What often gets failed to mention alongside policing is that, especially in Camden, that the poverty rate in Camden fell it dropped significantly. At the same time that people were touting that all of these reforms in Camden was improving policing, they failed to mention that poverty had also declined in Camden because the state of New Jersey was trying to incentivize companies to move there in order to, like, catalyze the economy and so when again inequality decreases we see less violence because people aren't stealing book bags from like young black girls getting off the trains in new york city right so there's a drop a decrease in inequality but yet the inequality goes out the window the poverty rate all that conversation goes out the window about how that actually reduces harm and then the focus is on look clearly this was the police no all these other factors happen if we look at the government to accountability office, when they analyze the results of the crime bill, they say, well, putting all these additional officers on the street only yielded about a 2% reduction in what we call crime. What actually caused more reduction in crimes was all of these developments in education, early childhood education, job growth in these areas and in, in these different communities. And so what's bad usually about the police literature is that it looks at policing in isolation and it doesn't take into account other economic programs that are happening, other shifts in education that are happening, the rise of mutual aids in particular neighborhoods, even with Black churches, the level of mutual aid and charity that Black churches do in areas where violence is, you know, reportedly higher, none of that gets taken into account in these research studies where it says, well, we put 18 more cops on this block every day for the past year, right? So we can't just have such a narrow research focus because then we applaud the results of that without looking at the full context of what happens in that city. So does that mean that a combination of
1: policing and increased social services can lead to the kind of society that you
2: envision? I mean, by your own example, do we want police to be giving tickets to people who are riding bikes who don't have bells? Right. Because right now that's a combination that we have. We have people who are still being ticketed for silly, arbitrary offenses. We still have about 15,000 homicides every year in the United States. I don't think that the combination is effective. And one significant reason, and this is related to the lack of context that affirms the more police presence, one significant reason is because police often sabotage alternatives to policing. And so we see where there's street violence interrupt the programs throughout the country. The ones that are not ran by police, police have an antagonistic relationship to them, right? We see police spraying spray paint in different gang territory to catalyze violence. We still see the use of informants, right? We see these surveillance lists for people who haven't even done any harm, haven't done any crime, but yet they're on these watch lists. I don't think that's the society that I want to live in. I think that we can do much better than that. And what we're continuing to pay police in billions, all of those resources could actually be shifted towards reducing the inequality that police are then sent to go and manage.
1: There's also the argument that accountability is what we need, right? Accountability will improve policing. So Derek Chauvin, what happened in that trial was unprecedented. The fact that there were people in his own department willing to speak up against him and say what he did to George Floyd was completely unlawful. So is there an avenue where holding police officers accountable and really holding them to task uh, with their behavior? Is there any way that that could help us achieve the society that you envision?
2: I don't think so. I don't think so for lots of reasons. One, what happened with Derek Chauvin, I wouldn't say is unprecedented at all. We've seen more police convictions in the last, I don't know, seven, eight years than we've seen in the last 50 years. Yet police still continue to kill more than three people a day. Even with the rise in police convictions, we still see them kill more than three people a day. Often, when cops get convicted, sometimes they get prison time. And if they do, they don't get the same amount of prison time that lots of other people who commit similar offenses do, even though they're supposed to be technically holding up the law. So we see less punishment, less prison time for cops who are engaging in egregious behaviors. And then well, I'll say two more things about this. Yeah, The accountability, especially with the police convictions, it doesn't necessarily take into account that the Supreme Court grants police with the power to make violent calls in split-second decisions, right? Uh, the court says, look, Police officers, they don't have time to be weighing what's going to be the full consequences of my actions if I need to stop violence that I am alleging that it's happening, right? I have the power to make a split-second decision based on my best judgment about this particular situation. I get to deploy force, right? I get to shoot. I get to hurt someone. And I have the power to do that with a split-second decision-making that has been granted by the Supreme Court. So if the court says cops have to make split second decision making and determining when to use force, do we think in that split second that the court says cops have all the time that they're going to say, wait, 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 before I pull this trigger, remember Derek Chauvin was convicted of killing George Floyd, right? According to the court's own logic, they don't have time to make those calculations, and so we're trying to assume that the punishment that they're going to receive through a court conviction would then offset what the Supreme Court says that they don't have to consider. So that's not going to work. The second reason that's not going to work is that, again, we can use Derek Chauvin. Let's say that Derek Chauvin, he, he's going to go to prison, I think, for 20 years. The next cop who puts his knee on someone's neck over using alleged counterfeit $20 bill, let's say that person doesn't die. Let's say they live. Let's say they live and they go to a hospital. Or let's say they live and go straight to jail. Let's say a cop does it for five minutes instead of 10 minutes, right? Nothing's going to happen. There will be no protests, no uprisings. 20 million people are not going to go into the street every time a cop harms someone by putting their body into their neck if that person does not die. And so if we only can count on convictions and accountability and justice when someone is killed by the police and not the daily mundane stops and frisks, hits, assaults, intimidation, that's what is at stake right? Not the spectacular killings that go viral, but the everyday nature of policing. That is what at stake. And so the accountability, it doesn't speak to how violent everyday policing is. And unfortunately, using those spectacular cases to try to stop policemen being so violent, it's just not going to lead us to a lot of success. Mm. And I've watched people get
1: curious about abolition and a lot of Black women too, right? But they'll stop engaging when they get to the what do we do about the rapists? Won't we still have murderers? What do we do with them? How do we address the rise in crime? Like in 2020, the U.S.'s murder rate went up by almost 30%. So people seem eager to get to these gotcha moments to try to counter the abolitionist imagination. But then it's also right a legitimate fear within us of just like, we're not safe. We're not going to be safe. How do you approach that?
2: Well, I want to respond quickly. So I don't know if that statistic is accurate Mm -hmm. that the murder rate increased by 30 percent. And the murder rate has also been historically low over the last like 30 to 40
1: years. Yeah. So more information is just that the murder rate went up in 2020, but crime overall fell by four or five percent in 2020.
2: And there's also disputes around the 30% figure from there the are. FBI and from the New York yeah. Times. So yeah, I didn't I didn't want there to are. just respond to the question without contextualizing <laughs> yeah. again the statistic. Absolutely. I think what's also very specific even about the murder rate that is jumping. It's the context in which it's jumping. And so I know that since COVID has happened, we have experienced deep, deep, deep inequality. We see people lose jobs. We see people lose homes. We've seen the government for several months give people $600 or $1,200 to live on. And so the more inequality that we expect in this society, the more violence and harm that's going to happen as a result of it. And so with the rising inequality, I am shocked, honestly, that violence isn't higher than what it is. Right. I I am honestly shocked. I think if it had not been for the robust mutual aid and sharing and interventions that people have tried to do for each other, you know, I don't know where the violence rate would be. So we can't look at that murder rate out of context. Right. And even with the responses to COVID, the police have still been getting more and more and more funding. Right. The police businesses like they continue to get funding. Sometimes it's so tragic to me knowing what has happened in the last year with the spikes in the homicides. Like, yeah, we have to absolutely be responsive. But here's the thing. There are nearly a million cops, there's like 700,000 cops, there's 18,000 law enforcement agencies, and they all got huge grants from the federal government to do policing. Now, if policing is inadequate to the spike in murders, why do we think that more policing will then contribute to a decrease? Like, why do we think that? Just logically, it doesn't even make sense. Right. And so let's say that there is a 30 percent spike in murder rate. Well, why? Well, because of the inequality that we've experienced during the pandemic and rather of fighting to make sure that people can stay in their homes, that they get more assistance. What do we see? We see the expiration on eviction moratoriums. We see states deciding to reopen prematurely. 2,000 people died in the last 24 hours. And we're talking about parents. We're talking about people who earn money and resources for their families. We're talking about caretakers and babysitters and teachers and friends and loved ones, right? So we're seeing more vulnerability and more precarity. And until we have an actual robust, courageous response to the pandemic, the violence is going to continue. And we cannot police our way out of it. Hell, police are refusing to even get vaccinated. They're boycotting vaccines. They're contributing to the crisis and then they're being paid to go manage it. And so I think it's absolutely tragic what's happening right now. And I'm, again, so grateful for all of the organizers and organizations who have been committed to helping people pay rent to pay their mortgages, to feed themselves, to feed their children, to come up with pods so that students can learn when schools were closed. I am so grateful for organizations that passed out masks at the time where the federal government were telling people not to buy masks, where school districts were penalizing students who were coming to class with masks on. I am so grateful because had there not been a robust community-based response, I think the violence would be even higher. Abolition is not to be anti-accountability or pro-violence. What we're saying is that police isn't working. So we need to come up with better, robust responses to inequality and to policing. Because as long as we choose to invest in the latter, the inequality is going to continue and we're not going to actually get to the root causes of harm.
1: That all sounds great, but would any of this actually work? That's a typical follow-up question that an abolitionist might hear, maybe even from a progressive. Sounds great, but what about people who are just determined to steal, vandalize, or hurt others? After one last short break, I'll ask Erica: would abolishing police really make society better?
3: Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area that's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own kpi checklist NetSweet.com slash gray area
0: startups you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience giving ambitious companies greater precision control and focus without compromising security Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit Mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level.
1: So something that I see people tend to do um, in conversations about abolition is first they say, oh, that's a utopia because getting rid of the root causes of crime still won't address people who are naturally inclined to hurt other people. What is your response to that? Like, do you believe that humans are just inclined to be violent and want to kind of get over on other people? Or, Or is that capitalism? Is that our socialization that has caused us to be this way, right? Like the person who took the bike from your car.
2: Well, if I had to make an assumption about the kind of person who took the bike from my car, I would assume that they probably don't I don't know, own a home or have lots of resources and wealth. I would assume that they're not lurking in the streets, like trying to steal bikes from people's cars because they live a comfortable life. If I had to make that assumption. When I used to steal from my mom and from my grandmother, (laughs) it was because I I didn't have money. (laughs) Like, I don't know why we mystify why people commit harm. Like when I do these trainings with abolitionist groups, with organizations who are not yet abolitionists, but, you know, are interested and curious about it. I asked them. I said, raise your hand, you know, if you have ever been a victim of like theft, if someone has ever stolen from you, everyone raises their hand. And then I'll say, raise your hand if you've ever stolen from someone. And then people like will raise their hand, everyone will start laughing. And then eventually you'll see that people steal from each other for lots of different reasons. And so I don't know. I'm a person of faith. I guess I'm a Christian or whatever. I think that there is like bad things that people do. The overwhelming majority of violence is not because there are just people who are born that way. And if so, one question I do ask to those people who will say, you know, some people are just evil, some people are just wicked. I'll just ask, well, do they all just happen to live in the United States, right? When we look at the level of mass shootings in this country compared to other countries, do all the people who are just born evil just all happen to live here? Or is it that we have more guns than we have people in this country? And we have a Congress who refuses to do anything about that, right? Like, why are there 15,000 homicides here every year and not in other places with similar populations? Why is it that the inequality is so massive here and not in other parts of the world, right? Why is sexual violence against indigenous people so high, you know, in the United States? So it could just be the case that, yeah, there are just evil people in the world. that are all just born in the United States. But I don't think that's true. I don't think that's the case. I think that we are deeply socialized in the United States around violence. And what abolitionists are trying to do is undermine that socialization and put forward a different way of being in the world. And it's not going to happen overnight. We're not going to eliminate 14, 15,000 murders overnight, homicides overnight, rather. But what we can do is, well... We can change the social relationships in the United States so that by the time we actually get, I don't know, down to 1,000 homicides or 200 homicides, maybe we can have better accountability in a way that's caring and thoughtful in a way that actually may prevent other harm or actually might take into account the real circumstances and offer some relief for the survivors and the person who caused the harm. Maybe we'll have more time to create a better system of response rather than the one that we have now because we have, again, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cops, and we still have so much sexual violence and so many homicides. And it's just an inadequate response to the harms of our nightmares. And so that is why I'm excited about what abolitionists are fighting for. And I know it's going to take time to get there, but I think it's more than worth the pursuit.
1: So in thinking about getting there, is there a specific plan or roadmap for abolition? Like, What is the relationship between abolition and time? Like is abolition right now or is there like a future date that you're working toward? Or are the actions that we're doing today all considered part of the abolitionist dream?
2: I would say it's more than just a dream. I think that there are lots of things that are happening that can be considered abolitionists, right? So abolition is not just simply the eradication of the institution of policing and mass incarceration or the carceral state. It's also building up the kinds of people, neighborhoods, relationships, planet that we all deserve. And that's always happening, right? And so in terms of a timeline, there are different people who are fighting on different timelines for broader visions that lead towards abolitionist future. So when I listen to climate justice activists fighting to stop emissions or fighting to stop the increase of Earth's temperature by four degrees in the next 10 to like 30 years, that has abolitionist implications because the more that the planet heats up, the more there's going to be climate refugees, the more chaos is going to be across borders, the more that governments are going to deploy police and the military to go be responsive to them. Right. So I would think of something like that as a very specific timeline that has abolitionist implications. And so when we think about abolitionist relationship to lots of different struggles for justice, some of them do have concrete timelines. Others, it really depends. Do I think that I'm going to be alive to see the total eradication of the prison industrial complex? Absolutely not. I'm not going to be here. I doubt my children are going to be alive. You know, maybe my grandchildren, if we still have a planet by then. But what I hope is that I am doing what it takes right now, doing my brief time on this planet to make sure that the foundation is being laid to make it easier for the next group of people who are finding to reduce resources from the police, who are fighting to reduce our reliance on the police, who are fighting to reduce the reasons why people think they need police. And everything I just listed, all of that's happening right now, and it's gonna to continue to happen over time. It's just about whether people are going to sabotage that by continuing to give money to the police.
1: Are there ever any moments when you feel like abolition just feels way too big, too daring for us to just imagine our liberation?
2: in that way and just demand it? Yes and no. Interestingly, what used to at least feel so overwhelming to me was fighting or stopping climate change. I was like, I don't know. I think we're too far gone. (laughs) Like it's too late. But the more that I read, the more that I met climate justice activists, the more that I studied and struggled alongside them, I was like, oh yeah, we actually can do this. Like this can happen. When people say, We need to abolish the police. I'm sure that makes you feel like, whoa, what are you talking about? That's what I used to feel about with climate change. And so it absolutely is going to feel overwhelming. I think what gives me a lot of inspiration is to know that there are so many movements in which the impossible seemed impossible. From the abolition of slavery to women's suffrage to some of the demands and gains from the civil rights movement, you know, to the fight for the eight-hour workday, the fight for social security—all of these struggles that we benefit from right now—they once seemed impossible. Right? There are abolitionists and insurrectionists who fought to end slavery who never got to be free, who never got to experience it, and it is in their tradition, in their legacy, that I'm just like, wait. You know, I may not be able to see this, but it's so important for me to do what I need to do now because that's the tradition that I come from and that's where I learn. So there's that. The part where I am a bit curious or pessimistic or I'm just wondering like, wow, is this going to manifest in the way that I hope it does? It's actually around white violence. I remember when Sandy Hook happened. And a white gunman walked into an elementary school and killed nearly 30 white five and six year olds. And nothing radically changed about gun violence in this country. Like nothing. I mean, I didn't even go all the way to Columbine. Right. But just Sandy Hook. And that's what, 2012 or 2013. I remember just being like, okay, something is definitely going to change now. And then when I think about the shooting that happened a couple of days ago in Michigan, I was like, oh, y'all are pretending that this society is so progressive. Y'all are pretending that you really care about violence, that we need police to come and be first responders when these mass shootings happen. But you aren't committed to even saving white five and six-year-olds. Like, what does that literally mean for everyone else, not only in this country, but in this world? And so I have a deep of Pessimism and anger towards that idea, and the same people who keep telling us we need to fund more police in order to be responsive to violence actually won't do anything courageous to stop the rampant gun culture in the United States, and that angers me.
1: Yeah, throughout this whole conversation, I've just been thinking about Dylan Roof. For me, when I think about like the most violence, I think about Dylan Roof, and I'm just like, wow, what kind of world? Should we be imagining right now? Can we create so that something or someone like a Dylan Roof, right, shooting up churchgoers so that couldn't happen again or just never happen. Like, what kind of world could we live in? Do you have time for one more question, Derek? And yes. it's just a question about the future. Yeah, of course. Awesome. So it's 200 years from now and we've achieved abolition. For me and you... Black women, what are we able to do? And in the conclusion of your book, you talk about neighborhood councils, childcare. you talk about conflict resolution, health clinics, green teams. So what do we have access to 200 years from now? And what are we able to do?
2: Oh, wow. This is so good. This is so good. This is so good. I've been thinking a lot about invisibility. There's this, you know, like this social media thing about what it means to be seen and Black women... Are not seen and we celebrate and applaud Black visibility and Black mobility. But I'm actually very curious about what invisibility will look like. Like, what does it mean to not feel like a target? or not to feel like you have to be tasked with breaking barriers, even within your family or outside your family. So I imagine a world where Black women in particular get to live very normal, exciting lives or mundane lives if they choose to. I imagine that they have new kinds of problems, right? That's the world that I'm ultimately fighting for. How do we get new kinds of problems? So many of my friends, it's so sad are they want to be partnered young Black women, you know, in their 30s, and early 40s. They want to be partnered. And I always tell them, like, girl, you need to become an abolitionist because mass incarceration is disappearing a million Black men who you're attracted to, right? And so it's so, so, so... Sad to know that it seems like many of our options have been stifled by misogyny, by patriarchy, by capitalism. So, in that future, I imagine lots of options, different kinds of relationships. Intimate relationships, different kinds of friendships. I imagine black women being able to experience love that's not predicated on whether they'll be able to have health insurance, right, in a marriage or a house because their husbands making more than them. More, I imagine a society where there's no private property, and we get to experience our lives based on. For so, for example, I think about Airbnb all the time. How Airbnb you know, it gentrifies communities, it displaces poor communities. And, you know, we have companies who are buying houses and flipping them just so they can be Airbnb. And I was like, wow, after the revolution, what are we going to do with all of these mansions? I want something where you don't have to rely on an income to experience beauty right? To experience what it feels mm-hmm. like to wake up on a coast for a couple of weeks and watch the water hit the side of your window. Like I want everyone to be able to experience that. I want us to think about travel differently. If you want to go from New York City to Miami, you can take a high-speed train and get there in a couple of hours. And once you get there, there's robust, quality childcare for you to drop your kids off, right? I want all of that and so much more. And I'm very jealous of the people who will be able to live in that kind of future. Wow, I'm very, very jealous of them as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so jealous. <generous. laughs> I really just had a vision in my mind of just
2: all of that. You saw the train? Did you yeah, see the I train? saw the train. You saw I the saw train, the mansions, right? Yeah, You saw the mansions, right? We all get to rotate. <laughs> we all get to eat. and Fernell, thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis Our editor is Amy Drozduska Paul Robert Mouncey Mixed and mastered this episode Our theme music Was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder And Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk If you like the show, let us know Room for improvement We want to hear that too We're curious to know what you think, what you want to know more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.
0: Support for today's show
2: comes from Deloitte. Do you want a career that meets you where you are and takes you where you want to go? Whatever your individual ambitions, motivations, and skills may be, discover your potential at Deloitte, right along with purpose-driven teams and a difference-making culture. Be seen for who you are and celebrated for what you bring. Discover your impact at Deloitte. Learn more at deloitte.com us slash